Greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those tunes that just bless the old ears is courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey, and I, of course, am your host, Tessa Morrow. Before I dive into this episode, I do want to send my most sincere condolences when it comes to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, that I just, it is so heartbreaking. So many precious lives are lost. And my thoughts and prayers are with the deceased and their families, the survivors, and the missing. Scattered throughout the globe are homes that are dubbed the death house. Not always like that, of course. Sure, they started out as home sweet homes with warming memories and laughter, but then sinister things happen that quickly change home sweet home to the house that is known as the death house, the house of terror. Today, this episode takes us to Greenwich Village in New York. The address 14 West 10th Street. It's a gorgeous Greek revival brownstone located in a very nice and well-to-do neighborhood, and it was built in 1856. And I gave the address of this location because New York has a few death houses. As you approach the house, there's this plaque that reads, In this house once lived Mark Twain, Samuel Longhorn Clemens, author of the beloved American classic, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Now, throughout the years, many people would live in this home. One such tenant was James Borman Johnston, founder of the Metropolitan Underground Railway and the 10th Street Studio. After his death, his widow and children would live here throughout the 1880s, but it is believed that nothing happened at that time. No deaths, no bad luck. Now, it seems that things begin to happen, at least things that are noticed, in 1897, when a cycling celebrity by the name of Fred Andrew, he's living in this home. Everything is hunky-dory until August 9th. On that fateful day, he is riding his beloved bike when a horrible accident unfolds. He plows right into an eight-year-old child. This poor boy suffers a broken leg, and the once-respected Andrew, well, he's arrested for reckless behavior. And from 1900 to 1901, Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, also calls this home. Now, while in this home for just over a year, Twain, he deals with bankruptcy and depression. Now, like our friend Houdini, Twain was a debunker a skeptic when it came to the paranormal and the supernatural. But that did not stop him 
from having his very own first-hand encounter in this New York home. One particular evening, he sees with his very own eyes a rather large chunk of wood, like a big piece of kindling, levitate into the air. The debunker in him tells him that perhaps this is a rat moving the piece of wood. And he shoots it. And with that shot, it falls hard to the ground. When he walks over to investigate the matter, he sees that surrounding the piece of wood that was just in the air seconds earlier were little droplets of blood scattered about. He always believed in his heart this to be the blood of a rat. And even though New York has tons of rats, does now, did back then, no one, including Mark Twain, ever had reported seeing rats, droppings, or any type of evidence of rats or mice being in that house. Ever. In 1987, on the second day of November, a truly gut-wrenching event takes place at the house of death. The New York Daily News reports this. Around 6.40 a.m., 911 operators got a pressing phone call from children author and editor Hida Nussbaum. She said that her six-year-old daughter, Lisa, wasn't breathing, so an ambulance was sent to her Greenwich Village right away. When paramedics arrived, they were greeted by a very disturbing scene. They found Lisa lying naked and unresponsive on the kitchen floor, and her brother Mitchell tied to a playpen and soaked in his own urine. Nosbaum herself was covered with bruises and had several broken bones. Investigators also discovered marijuana, cocaine, hashish, over 20 crack pipes, and $25,000 in cash at the apartment. Today, that $25,000 is worth $65,316 and some change. So, okay, granted, yes, this children's author, she was hurt also. But how inappropriate having so many different types of drugs and drug paraphernalia scattered throughout the house with two children being in it? And why on earth was that little boy tied up to his playpen covered in his own urine. And the only reason that this would be okay for the child to be tied up was if he was being possessed by some demonic spirit and an exorcism was taking place. Of the Holy Spirit, by this sign of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. And I highly doubt it. And then, of course, we have the dead child. Nothing about this situation is okay. Not one percent of it. As hard as paramedics try with their life-saving efforts, they cannot revive the little girl. The cause of death was repeated blunt force trauma to her skull. The deceased girl's parents, Hida and defense lawyer, Joel Steinberg, are arrested for the murder of the six-year-old Lisa. Now, it is thought that after a cocaine binge, Joel attacks his wife and daughter. And believe it or not, instead of murder charges, I mean, I would have thrown his ass in prison 
and throw away the key. Then get the death penalty going back in New York, throw his ass in Sing Sing, throw his ass in the execution chamber, and sayonara, Steinberg. But that's just me. He is found guilty of manslaughter in the second degree, and he is actually released in 2004. Now, excuse my language, but so much for fucking justice. Now, furthermore, adding insult to injury, if that is possible, was the fact that Lisa's biological mother had paid this couple to find an adoptive family for her daughter. They illegally adopted her themselves. Hida testified against her husband with the sole promise that charges against her would be dropped, which I think is complete bullshit. And I could only hope that poor Mitchell, Elisa's brother, who was found, remember, tied up to the crib, soaked in his own urine, was able to be placed in a loving home after this horrific tragedy. Lisa and Mitchell weren't even supposed to be in that house. Like, are you kidding me right now? So how did this happen? This is every parent's worst nightmare. This woman, I don't know the situation, but obviously she felt she couldn't provide for her children. So she tried to give money to somebody to find a good home for them. You know, maybe she should have brought them to social services or to a fire station or something else. But in her mind, I assume she thought that this was okay. Instead, one is tied to a crib and the other is murdered. I, I, I would want to think that she thought that, okay, this is a child's author. She loves children. She cares for them. She, she loves them so much that she wrote a book about them. Of course they're going to be in safe hands until they find a home. But there's nothing safe about the situation and New York's death house. The New York Post reports this when it comes to the monster child abuser slash murderer being released. Three decades ago, he was the ultimate face of evil, a monster who beat his illegal adopted six-year-old daughter, Lisa Steinberg, into a coma, then smoked free-based cocaine until it was too late to save her. The little girl's fatal beating on November 1st, 1987, would make the front page headlines prompt outcry over the state of the child welfare system and land Joel Steinberg nearly 17 years behind bars. Today, Steinberg is living the quiet life of an aging loner in Harlem, hitting up strangers for cigarettes and Wi-Fi connections as he ekes out a living as a disbarred lawyer. Most days, he shuffles around the corner to ask the neighborhood's produce vendor for handouts of rotting fruit and vegetables to use for fertilizer on the garden outside his rear ground floor apartment. You have to remember, I am a pariah, so it's not that easy for me. Steinberg, 76, said during an exclusive interview with the Post last week. If you go out there and put a picture of me in the paper, I can't take a subway for two whole weeks because of some fat person will decide to say, I know you and you're a piece of shit. And then I turn around and he punches me in the fucking nose. Ah, cue the world's tiniest violin. Poor guy. Two New Yorkers who know about his heinous crime, Steinberg deserves far worse than a sock in the face. On the 30th anniversary of Lisa's fatal beating, he remains remorseless, steadfastly denying any guilt for ending her life. What did she die of? She died of pulling the plug. 
he said, referring to the brain-dead child finally being taken off life support for days after he brutalized her. Steinberg even disgustingly claims that he can't come to grips with Lisa because he's just too painful. For him. One of the things I do, instead of suppressing the memory, I keep the memory alive. And what I notice and what people have pointed out to me, I speak as if Lisa were alive. I don't accept her loss. I don't accept it as a loss. I accept it as a memory. Then, he once again proves that his evil knows no bounds. Asked if he had anything he wished to say to Lisa, Steinberg's answer in a cold tone that dripped with sarcasm. Yeah, I'll never kill you again, and I'll never beat you up every day, and I'll never make you a torture tot in a house of terror. The last phrase is something he also mentioned during a 1997 parole hearing. And I need to say this again, I just can't believe it. Yeah, I'll never kill you again, and I'll never beat you up every day, and I'll never make you a torture tot in a house of terror. Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, how can this guy have gotten manslaughter in the second degree and not murder? This sentence alone screams volumes. He admits to killing her. He admits to brutally attacking this child every single freaking day of her life that she was with him. And she was only six years old. Are you kidding me? Steinberg was denied parole five different times. Five. But sadly, he eventually is handed a mandatory parole. He claims to be a victim himself, saying that he is not happy that he lost the best years of his life while in prison. Well, I'm sorry, but what about the years he robbed from the six-year-old that he illegally adopted? And really, she's not even a daughter to him because it was an illegal thing. So I would like to prefer to her as a kidnap victim, as she simply did not belong at that house. Neither did Mitchell. Murdered at six years old, dead at six, and yet the 76-year-old man is complaining that his years were robbed from him. Doesn't make sense to me. He still gets to live when she is dead and buried. Now, by the year 1937, the home, well, it's been converted into apartments at this point, and one of those apartments is home to a mother and daughter. Well, these two ladies, they encounter an apparition of a man who looks very much like the beloved author Mark Twain. They see him sitting at a seat, which is located next to a window. He looks at mother and daughter and says to them, My name is Clemens, and I has a problem here. I gotta settle. He then vanishes before their very shocked eyes. I, I mean, I could imagine they were shocked eyes. <laughs> I would be like, holy shit. This mother and daughter duo would not be the only people to claim to see the spirit of Mark Twain. It is believed that he remains at this house. It's really unknown why, as he did not really care for this home, nor was his stay very pleasant. So why he would choose to stay here in spiritual form, I just have no clue. Perhaps he is keeping an eye out on tenants trying to make sure that they stay safe. Now, some have seen his apparition walking up and down the stairs, which happens to be one of the most active locations in this home. 
So we at least know that there have been ghost sightings at this home starting back from 1937 from when the mother and daughter saw Twain. Now fast forward 20 years later in 1957, actress Jan Bryant-Bartell and her daughter, they are living here on the top floor. Not only is she an actress, but she is also a writer and a psychic. They are located in the room that once housed the servants. Now in Jan's own words, she experienced a, quote, monstrous moving shadow, unquote, that would follow her about. She also saw the full-bodied apparition of a gentleman standing in the hallway. Now, this encounter would be very interesting as she reaches out to touch this mysterious guest. She describes this encounter, quote, a substance without substance, chilly, damp, diaphanous as marsh mist or a cloud of ether. I could feel my fingers freeze at the tips. They were numb and yet they tingled. In the split second between contact and recoil, the scent came, fragile and languorous and sweet, unbearingly, cloyingly sweet, unquote. She would also experience something that was rather unsweet. She would, at times, find food in the house that she had not brought in herself. And it would be rotting and decaying, often appearing out of nowhere and usually somewhere right out in the open, like on the dinner table. Not like hidden away in the pantry where it's like, ah, shit, I forgot I got that a couple weeks ago. The family pets, they would also at times become extremely aggressive, as if being taunted by unseen hands. Many times she would feel eyes watching her every single move, and unseen fingers brush against her neck. Like, talk about getting some goosebumpies. Footsteps would follow her. Cold chills would often be felt around the house, and other odd smells were experienced as well. So you're getting a little bit of everything. You're seeing apparitions. You're smelling things. You're getting this mysterious food, you know, items that don't belong in the house. You're getting touched. A little bit of everything is going on in this New York house of death. Now, unlike Samuel Clemens, also known as Mark Twain, Jan is very much a believer of the paranormal and supernatural and recruits the help of someone in the paranormal field. Two people, one being a medium, the other being a paranormal investigator. Now, at the end of the investigation into the home, this investigator shared with the family that there are no less than 22 spirits in this house. Like, 22. Holy crap. This individual named Mark Twain as being one of the spirits and also a cat. Now, perhaps this is what was taunting the live animals. You know, they're being very aggressive. You know, maybe it was this phantom animal. Another resident spirit is believed to be a lady in a white dress and a small child and also an aborted baby. Now, it's interesting that this house has so many spirits. Like, you see, like, thousands of spirits in asylums and, and in jails and brothels and different locations like that. But in houses to have so many, that's really interesting. 
Now, at one point during this investigation, the medium claimed to feel a presence that was kind of lurking about beneath the floorboards. And at some point, a spirit came through, which left the medium in a trance. Now, while in the trance, the spirit communicated saying that she was born in 1848 and that sadly her husband was killed while fighting in the Civil War. She had also lost a child. Now, this is believed to be the aborted baby that was felt earlier on in the investigation. Jan had so many encounters and experiences and sightings that she decided to write a book about it titled Spindrift Spray from a Psychic Sea. It entices readers by the cover yelling, the most terrifying book you'll ever read. The story of a woman discovering a diabolical possession, a spine chiller. When it came to this book, I was intrigued. You should see my library. I have so many books about haunted locations and spirits and just old haunted wild west and just a bunch of everything. And I'm always looking to add a book to my ever-growing collection. And so I wanted to read it. I, I, I was like, maybe I'll learn more about it for this episode. And so I go searching for it. For example, I look on Amazon and I was shocked to find that this book has a whopping price tag for $287.47. Used was available for $59.99. I really do not think so, my friends, but for free, I will read this description to you. It reads, it all began when young actress slash poet Jan Bartel moved with her husband into the old Greenwich Village townhouse once inhabited by Mark Twain. At first, there were only the strange phenomena of unexplained shadows and sounds and a presence that seemed to clutch at her in the dark. Then the death started, claiming one after another of the building's occupants. This is the story of Jan Bartel's discovery of a diabolical possession she first cannot believe then could not deny it is her story of her fight against it and her eventual flight from it jan bartell's flight was in vain one month after finishing this extraordinary true story the author was found dead and the pattern of horror was complete an insert from the book read this like a game of ten little Indians, deaths began to occur in the house. The first to die was a dog, Jan's own beloved Penelope. But within twenty-four hours, she was to learn of the death from the first human tenant. Whether by heart attack, suicide, or murder, the deaths came in rapid succession. In terror, with nine little Indians gone, the Bartels moved far, far away from Greenwich Village. But the haunting followed them. After the completion of Spindrift, Jan Barthel became the tenth. Now, unfortunately, this woman dealt with depression. And she actually had attempted to take her own life several different times. She died, they say, under mysterious circumstances. Don't really know what happened, but I do see in other articles that it was possibly a heart attack. So, don't know. Either way, she wrote this book. She fled the house because she was afraid. Several people, I believe it was nine people, had died. Ten deaths, if you want to include her animal. And this is while she was there. We're not talking about Lisa's death or anybody else's. But 
you know, she flees and then she herself dies right before the book is to come out. So very interesting stuff. Many times people have heard the sound of marching coming from areas that are known to be vacant. Out of the 22 spirits, the woman in white has been seen many times. Perhaps she is the most seen when it comes to the spirits that live here. Many report her wearing a white nightgown, while others will describe her as wearing a white dress. She has been known to walk right through doors, and she causes lights to flicker when she's around. So, if you are ever in the Greenwich Village area, be sure to drive over to West 10th Street and check out this house that endured so much heartbreak and is home to at least 22 spirits. Don't know if you can actually go and tour the place, but you will find that plaque talking about Mark Twain right there. And when you look at that house, just know all that happened there. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally spooktacular. Haven't heard every single one yet? Well, really, there is no need to fret, my friends. You can binge listen right now by hitting up any of those awesome podcast platforms such as Deezer, Podash, Player FM, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to the Varangedi, India, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, Chantilly, Virginia, Modesto, California, and Kaiser, Oregon. As always, it is greatly appreciated that you came and stopped by and chilled out with me. Have a story of your very own to share? Want to be a future voiceover? Know a location that's haunted that you want to see on the podcast? Hit me up, you guys. I love suggestions, recommendations, and people being on the show. Paranormal Prowlers podcast Facebook page, or you can toss an email my way at paraprowl at gmail.com. Thanks, and we will see you next week.